Thank you for that very spontaneous uh, <laughs> ovation. Really appreciate that. You're, you're actually very obedient to Pastor Chad, and that's great. I, I, was, I was sort of disappointed that he said I'm 70. Um, I was going to say that <clears throat> I've reached a new decade, and I thought I'd let the rest of you guess how old I was. But then I was afraid you might say, I'm in my 80s now. So. Uh, Thank you, Chad, for doing that. Appreciate it. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for what a privilege it is to share your word tonight. May you be heard loud and clear. Help me, Lord. Amen. So we're continuing this series. We've been doing highlights from Isaiah. And this evening, we've reached Isaiah 62. I chose that. We got to choose our own passage for preaching. And I've entitled this message this evening, Paving the Way for the Return of the Savior. Praying the way, preparing the way, and proclaiming the way. I believe the Lord led me to this. I think there's a significant word he wants to share with you. He wants to share it with me because we're in a significant hour in history, and this is very relevant to us. Turn in your Bibles then to Isaiah 62 or in your turn to your devices. Kind of don't like that word devices. Isn't, isn't there something uh, about that in Ephesians chapter six about spiritual warfare? And he's got all these devices that. Uh, anyway, Isaiah sixty-two verse one and two. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. We're going to read most of this book, or not the book, but this chapter, but I want to just stop for a moment at these two verses. Several things jump out at me. First of all, the prophet refers to Jerusalem and calls it also Zion. Now, Zion is often used as a synonym for Jerusalem, but other times it's referring to the whole nation of Israel. And he's speaking to, I believe, the Jewish people, especially those in this part of the world, in this nation. And we all know that the original call of the Jewish people was to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They were to be a intermediary, as it were, between sinners and a holy God. And the priests in particular had that role to represent men and women before God and to intercede on their behalf and offer up sacrifices to bring reconciliation between sinners and God. The whole nation was to be called priests. And in the New Testament, we understand that all of us who have been born again and are part of the family of God because we've been grafted in among the people of Israel. And we have come to follow Yeshua and accepted the work he's done on the cross, the atonement that you and I needed to have our sins covered and then washed away. We're called to be a light to the nations as well. Now at this time when Isaiah is writing this, uh, the nation's not in great shape. He talks about this lamp that is burning, but it's not burning brightly. It's almost snuffed out. But there is hope in this passage that that will change. Something jumps out at me here that uh, they will be characterized by righteousness. We see that in these two verses. And this will be noticed by other people around the world. Even kings will take note of Israel's right, right doing and thinking and being a, being a model to the world. Because Israel's doing what is right. Now, we know that Israel had a terrible reputation back in these days when Isaiah was speaking, and they were going into exile because of unrighteousness and even spiritual adultery. And so they were sent out of the land by God in retribution. Jeremiah often wept over this city and this nation, but he looks to a future day, and he writes this in Jeremiah 33, verse 16. In those days, Judah will be saved. And Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Now, not, not Israel's righteousness, not Judah's righteousness, not Jerusalem's righteousness, but the Lord, our righteousness. How many of you know that you can't be righteous on your own? You could never please a holy God by right living. 
We can never reach the full mark of the high calling of a holy God. Rabbi Saul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28 to 30, and these base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in the Messiah Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So there is coming a day when Israel will be righteous, but not based upon their own righteousness, but because the Lord himself will impute, will reckon the people as righteous. He will take that deficit in their bank account and he will pour into that bank account his riches of righteousness. Hallelujah. Now let's go to a few more verses here. Verse two and three, the Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You should be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. And now verse three, you shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. What jumps out to me here? First of all, when Israel is transformed into a righteous nation, it will impact all the other nations. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and the kings your glory. Paul looks forward to that day. He knows that Israel has fallen, a great fall. And some would say, they'll never get back up again. But then he writes in Romans 11, 11 and following, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall means riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Wow. Then verse 15. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And the word for life from the dead here is not the normal word for physical resurrection of a body from the grave, but it's a resuscitation. It's a spiritual revival in one's spirit. Wow. This has implications for the world. Another thing that jumps out at me in these verses, now we read this in verse four, you shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land be any more termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. Let me stop there. These are strange words, aren't they? Hephzibah. It actually means the Lord delights in you. Uchafetz. And then we have the word be'ulah, which means married. For as a young man marries a virgin, and so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Your land shall be married. You know, Hebraic biblical thinking is very different than the kind of thinking we've inherited from the Greeks. The Greeks would stress the dichotomy, even antipathy, between the material world and the spiritual world. In Hebraic thought, there's a understanding that the material world is not evil or irrelevant, but it is created by God, just as our souls and our spirits have been inbreathed by God. And God, when he created even material things, he said, this is good. The Greeks would love to be, escape from the prison of their material frames, their bodies, and be a soul that drifts that floats around in heaven. But no, we believe in the resurrection of the dead and that Jesus is the first fruits from the dead and we will bodily be raised to God because our bodies are also beloved to the Lord. And here it says, even the land, the material dirt in this land is beloved. Wow, pretty amazing. Now, I'm going to get practical from here on in. That's a little introduction to give you some context because we're going to come to the other, next verses which really apply to you and me very, very interestingly. I believe that if we look at Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37 and many other passages, we can see a chronology. In those two chapters, it speaks of first a return to the land and then a return to the Lord. 
So I believe we are approaching the end. History as we know it, because we're already seeing how the land is being restored. And the people of God are coming back to the land. This is a miracle in our own day. Did you know that now, just in this past year, it, looks, it appears that more Jews live in Israel than live in the rest of the world? This is a miraculous thing. Because the land was desolate, as Isaiah said, and desolate even 150 years ago. And Mark Twain talked about his visit here and spoke about the desolation of this land. But that's not the land we live in today. Ann and I have lived here for 40 years. This is not the city we moved to even 40 years ago. This city has come alive. We're in a special day, in a special hour. Now let's get practical. There's three main things I want to tell you. That God is not going to bring about this great restoration through his son in these latter days, except that he does it in partnership with you and me. We're going to see that. What are the three main aspects of our job description that God has given us as partners with him? Number one, to pray the way. Number two, to prepare the way. And number three, to preach or proclaim the way. First, pray the way. Isaiah 62. Let's go to verse 6 now and verse 7. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night who mention who make mention of the Lord and do not keep silent and give him no rest until he establishes and until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Have you noticed that we're in a battle? A battle over Jerusalem, a battle over this land. We live in a tough neighborhood. I believe we're near or at the time on God's calendar where God will restore this nation, but the devil knows that. He knows his time is short, and though he is working overtime to stop the purposes of God. No wonder we have terror and we have the threat of nuclear war. There's a growing conspiracy of nations in our Middle Eastern neighborhood and even within our borders attempting to destroy God's chosen people and cast Israel out of this land and from this city. We know that at God's set time, the enemy of our souls will do all he can to stop it. According to prophet Ze the prophet Zechariah, just before the great day of the Lord, the nations of the earth will come against Jerusalem. Because we're in these momentous days, the words of the Lord in Isaiah 62, verse 6, are more critical than ever. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. A watchman in Hebrew is shomer. It can be translated guard. When you came into this building this evening, you had to pass by a shomer. Two of them, in fact. One into the shopping center area and one just outside our door. Two shomrim. Interesting. Why are they there? They're like watchmen. They're guards watching to see if any suspicious characters try to get into this building. And I'd like you to turn to the person next to you and say, how in the world did you get into this place? <laughs> you didn't say that, did you? I know you obey Pastor Chad, but you wouldn't obey me to do that, no. God wants to partner with watchmen who watch and pray for Zion's restoration. In Nehemiah, we see that watchmen and praying people go together. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, it says, Upon hearing that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and gaps closed, Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites became very angry. They conspired to attack Jerusalem and create confusion to disrupt the rebuilding process. And then it says in verse 9 of that text, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Watchmen on the wall. If Nehemiah needed watchmen on the wall to watch and pray, how much more today? Isaiah 62 reveals to us that God has an end-time plan of restoration. And in fact, 
he's calling for people to stand on the wall and pray right now because he's about to do something. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. How many of us are really on the alert and in prayer for these things? I think of Yeshua's disciples, and it's kind of a relief to see they're human. <laughs> in Matthew chapter 26, at this most crucial time, when Yeshua is in distress concerning God's will and needing to go to the cross on our behalf, uh, he partners with some, what he thought were watchmen. Well, he knows everything, but he was at that time in his human limitations that with the sovereign will of God for that very short period. And he partners with these three guys, Peter, James, and John. And we read in that text <clears throat> that while Yeshua went off to pray and he cried out to God before he went to the cross, what were the watchmen doing? <laughs> They're asleep on the job. We read in Matthew 26, 40 and 41, and Yeshua said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Boy, Yeshua knows what we're like, doesn't he? Later he'll say that the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh, how weak we are in prayer. Oh God, give us the ability to stand on the wall faithfully. Always alert, watching, and always praying believing great things are in store. But we, not, we must not fall asleep on the job. And let me give you some hints of how we can pray and maybe fall asleep less on the job. Okay? Listen to this. Psalm 119, verses, in verses 147 to 148, listen to this. I rise before the dawn of the morning and cry for help. I hope in your word. My eyes are awake through the night watching that I might meditate on your word. What's the, what's the key here? Getting into God's word will make your prayer life much easier and much more effective because you will be praying according to the will of God. Isaiah 62, 6, 6 says that God's prayer warriors shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord do not keep silent. It's interesting. Make mention is the Hebrew word hamaskirim, the remembrancers. <laughs> They're like the secretary of state next to the president. Remember, president, and some presidents need to have their memories jogged. Now, Remember, remember, that's what it says in the text. The Levites' job was to remind, it says in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 4. Daniel and Nehemiah prayed the promises of Scripture. Nehemiah prayed for God's mercy, reminding God of his promises that were revealed originally to Moses. And we read this in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5 to 11, and I'll just read some of it. And he said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant of mercy. He's reminding the Lord, you who keep your covenant. Okay, we're in trouble. But I read in the books of Moses that uh, you've promised something here. And then he goes on, he says, later, remember, he uses the word remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of the heaven, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. God, you promised. And I'm just reminding you. <laughs> you know, actually, it seems crazy that we've been reminding the Lord, but the Lord commanded us to remind him. I don't think he's forgetful. But this is a secret to prayer. It's amazing. Daniel prays on behalf of himself and his fellow Jews who have sinned and deserve his punishment. Daniel 9, 
3 and following says, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him. Just reminding you, Lord, you said you'd keep your covenant. And you're a merciful God. We have these examples of the prophets who reminded the Lord all the time of his promises. And in this same book of Isaiah that we're studying, the Lord tells us in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 26, God says, put me in remembrance. It's in the hephil. He's kireni. Cause me to remember. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. So I encourage you to pray the scriptures. Pray the promises of scriptures. You're going to have a lot of content to your prayer. Some of you run out of things to say after 10 minutes. The Bible will keep you praying for hours and hours every day. (laughs) There's just so much to pray into. And it's the truth, and it's the revelation of God's will. And when you pray according to God's will, he will answer your prayers. Now we come to the need to pray for a specific thing as watchmen on the walls, and we pray that God will remove the veil. It's a crucial prayer. And this cannot be resolved without prayer, but only God can fix it because he's the one who caused it. (laughs) Unfortunately, what needs fixing is spiritual blindness, a veil over the scriptures that much of Israel suffers from. Back in Isaiah 6, we read this command to the prophet beginning in verse 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And then the Lord gave him some bad news. Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. For a period, God is putting a blinder on his people. It is part of his... Discipline is not to forsake them forever and never communicate with them or allow his presence to be in their midst. But he is teaching a lesson. But how long will this blindness be? It's interesting. It says later in, the, in that chapter, Isaiah 6, verse 11, how long, Lord? And the Lord answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate. Once that happens, then I'm going to start to change things. And you know, I believe we're in that time of change. We've had a desolate land for nearly 2,000 years. Nobody wanted to live in this city or live in this land. It spit out its inhabitants. But somehow, this land has become a magnet and become a superpower in the, in the economy and high tech and all kinds of things like that. I mean, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. And God reveals to Isaiah that there'll be a time when this will all change. And Yeshua knew this timing and he said these words. With a broken heart, one who wept over this city of Jerusalem. He said these words in Matthew 23, verse 37 and following, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, desolate. And so we recall God's answer to Isaiah's question. How long will these people be in a spate state of spiritual blindness until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man and the land is utterly desolate. But then Yeshua says in the very next verse to the religious leaders in this city, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Baruch Bashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It'll be a time when blindness is removed and they will see who he really is. God will no longer hide his face, but he will shine his face 
on his people. Now, you and I can't remove blindness. Only God can do that. And we read in the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, and verse 14, these words, but the, their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in the Messiah. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. How many of you know in our day we're seeing more and more people reading the scriptures and the veil has been taken away and they see that Yeshua is on its pages. We're in a new day, folks. When we came to this country 40 years ago, there may have been 500 Jewish believers today. Some say 25,000 or more Jewish believers in Yeshua. The veil is being lifted from many of their eyes. But more is yet to come. And when will Yeshua return and establish his kingdom in Jerusalem and rule the whole world? It will come when they welcome him, Baruch Haba. They will welcome him because they've come to know him. And we have this promise in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. The people are blind, yeah, but their day is coming. Listen to this. This Jewish prophet says, and I will pour out in the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look to me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Eyes will be open. They will look to him and they will know he is the one they've been waiting for. So let us pray and give him no rest until that day comes. So I've reminded you of the job description that God has given us concerning his plans to restore Jerusalem and Zion. He has called us to watch and pray. Pray the way. Number two, we come to it. Prepare the way. Verses 10. Verse 10 of chapter 62 of Isaiah says, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones. This verse tells us that we must build a well-paved highway clear of all obstructions for God's chosen people to go upon. We are to build a smooth highway so that there'll be nothing to delay them in reaching their true Messiah and Savior it's a race they should be running, not a crawl. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 speaks of the race that is set before us, looking unto Yeshua. So we've got to make a highway that one can run a race on. We've got to build it up. We've got to build an easier way for people to come into the kingdom to realize that Yeshua is the Savior. Now, a little bit of history Concerning preparing the way for the people, there's a big problem. The problem started way, way back in Genesis. Genesis 3.24 says, So he, that is God, drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way, the derech, to the tree of life. God put his own obstacle in the way, so that Adam and Eve could not readily go back to the garden in which he placed them. So to solve that problem, somebody has to come along and build a highway, a smooth way to God and the garden. I'm going to tell you, Yeshua is that way. I'm going to get to that in a moment. God wants us to be back where Adam and Eve were when, they once, when he once walked in the garden in the cool of the day with these people. Is there a way back? This, this is what Yeshua says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In the early days, many Jewish people found the way when the Jewish shlichim, the apostles, the sent ones, brought the gospel to Jerusalem in the power of the Spirit, they found 
they, they found a holy highway back to the Holy One. And Luke tells us concerning those early Jewish believers in Yeshua that the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. We think that trying to reach Jewish people with the good news is the toughest thing in the world. It's the hardest nation to reach them with the good news and yet many people came to faith in those days, even priests. So what's the problem? Do you think maybe we've created some of the problems? We've blocked the way. <laughs> we've blocked the way of the Lord. Uh, I, I think we've put some things in the way. In a moment, we're gonna talk about those things. Isaiah 62, our text says that one of our job descriptions is to prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, take out the stones take out the stones. The prophet seems to know that many stones impede the way and cause people to stumble on the way. And we can't ignore that one of those stones of stumbling is Yeshua himself. <laughs> For a season, God has made him a stumbling stone, but one day he will become the cornerstone. We can read about that in Isaiah. Talks about that. It says in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, he will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Wow. So I guess we've got to get rid of Yeshua. He's an obstacle on the way. No, no, no. He's, he, he's ultimately the one who paves the way with our help. We're going to get to that. 1 Peter 2.6, therefore it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Yeshua is the way, and he will get out of the way at his set time, and he's already getting out of the way because the set time is coming. Now, what about these man-made stumbling stones that we should get rid of on the highway to holy, of, of holiness? Number one, the stumbling stone of straying from our Jewish roots. The early church, as you know, made up only of Jewish believers, and those who joined in with those Jewish believers understood the importance of connecting with the heritage of Israel. They celebrated the feasts of the Lord. They went to the temple. Even the apostle Paul, who received the call to be the apostle to the Gentiles, would always go to the synagogue first on his evangelistic journeys. And he maintained his heritage as a Jew right up until the end. And when he was in Rome, people would visit him. And it says in that verse that with those who came to see him, he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Yeshua from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. No wonder so many Jewish people came to faith in those early days. They weren't joining a new religion. They discovered that Yeshua, the Jew, is the one the Jewish scriptures pointed to as their promised Messiah. Today, most Jews have seen a very different picture of Yeshua. And that's why in our vision statement as a congregation is King of Kings is called to be a compelling, Messiah-centered, spirit-empowered, disciple-making community, revealing the true face of Yeshua to Israel and the nations, for his face has been distorted. What do many Jews see today when they see Jesus? They see a blonde Swede. They see his followers shopping on the Sabbath and celebrating Easter and Christmas, but haven't even heard of the feasts of the Lord on many occasions. I'm shocked that even some of the pastors I know, they were shocked to see that some of these pilgrim feasts they hadn't even understood or saw any significance in. I'm afraid we've created a new religion Devoid of its roots, it is tragic that some of the ancient Christian councils made it illegal for Christians to celebrate the holiday of Passover and were forbidden to connect with any Jewish traditions, even those in the Bible. And that's a man-made stumbling block on the highway. Thankfully, more and more of us are heeding, heeding the words of Isaiah 62, verse 10, build up the highway, take out the stones, 
And that's a stone of stumbling. Number two, dual covenant theology. I'll be quick on this. This is another man-made stumbling block. Dual covenant. What is it? Dual covenant theology says Judaism and Christianity represent two separate and distinct covenants with God. The Jewish people have a unique and ongoing covenant with God based on the Torah, while Christians have a different covenant with God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And this perspective maintains that both covenants are valid and effective for Jews and Christians to relate to God. And it is unnecessary for Jews to be saved through the sacrifice of a man to be in right relationship with God. And shockingly, there are streams within Christianity that teach this heresy. And then there's a third stumbling block. It's another theology. We call it replacement theology or supersessionism. What is that? It's a theological view that the church has replaced or superseded the nation of Israel in God's plan. The Jews' role as God's chosen people ended with the coming of Yeshua, Jesus, and the church became the new and true Israel, inheriting the promises and covenants initially made to the Jewish people. If I'd had time, I'd go into that heresy very deeply, and I've written a booklet on it, and you could find it online if you're interested. That's a stumbling block to Jewish people. And some of the fruit that has come from that false theology has resulted in hatred of the Jews because God hates them now. He's rejected them because they rejected his son. Therefore, we should hate them. God loves his people. It's an everlasting love. It's an unconditional love. And I could go into the scriptures and prove that so, so easily. Let me give you another stumbling block. Hypocrisy. There's no sin that Yeshua condemned more than the sin of hypocrisy. He condemned hypocrisy. One of the reasons is because it causes people to be blocked from entering the kingdom of God. How do I know that? Matthew 23, verse 13. Yeshua says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow others those who are entering to go in. But hypocrisy is not the exclusive domain of the Jewish people. Hypocrisy is among the followers of Jesus too. Paul wrote to Titus these words in verse 16 of chapter 1, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. These are professing Christians. Proverbs 15 verse 19 says, but the way of the upright is a highway. Proverbs 16, 17, the highway of the upright is to depart from evil. Isaiah 35, verse 8, a highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. The highway that we are paving, the one we are building up, needs to be a highway of, that is built by holy people who present a true face of Yeshua. Because we are living according to the one we follow. We represent him well. From glory to glory, we're becoming more and more like him. A good representation of him. We're ambassadors for the Messiah. Hallelujah. A holy highway. No more hypocrisy. I could say more. Number five, disunity. It's a stumbling block. Stands in the way of people to choose to follow Yeshua. Thousands of denominations we have, not to name all the so-called independents. I find it interesting that people who do not want to be part of a denomination refer to themselves as independents. Somehow, I think this is the ultimate pride. The new covenant teaches that we are one body with many body parts, each of which depends on the other to function and accomplish the work of God. That's why we find the phrase one another Dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament because we depend on one another. We're not independent. Oh, we have so many lone rangers these days, especially post-COVID. I've got my relationship. It's Jesus and me. Or others that say, us four and no more. <laughs> uh, no, no. We depend on the body, the larger body that we might work together so that all the parts function, we're all healthy, and we're doing what God's called us to do together. Unity is one of the most powerful tools that proves that the gospel is really good news. Yeshua prayed this prayer in John 17. 
that we may be one just as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Why? That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The gospel has no power. It has no persuasiveness. It has no authority. It is undermined when we are disunified. Is that a word? When we're not in unity. Unity proves that the gospel is true. Because when Yeshua comes into our heart, it so transforms us that people know that we love one another because... We are his disciples. And when you're his disciples, you work together with other people. You collaborate. You're a team. You do it together because you know we need each other. That's unity. Disunity undermines the good news. What a stumbling block this is, not just to Jewish people, but to people all over the world. Come to the last point, and I'm sorry for going so long. How many of you are still with me? Okay, Pastor Chad, would you stand and say, Pastor Wayne needs you to listen to him. No, it's okay, it's okay. You don't need to do that. Okay. Okay, what are we, what are we, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you what we've done so far. We have a job description. God is recruiting partners in the work of bringing restoration to Zion. He needs you and me to do number one, pray the way. Number two, Prepare the way. It means building up and taking away the stones of stumbling. And number three, proclaim the way. Proclaim the way. Here we go. Verse 11 of our text, Isaiah 62. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. It couldn't be any clearer, right? Isaiah tells us, that the Lord himself proclaims, and it's a command. The word proclaim here, it's not a hint. <laughs> He's announcing something, okay? You better listen up. He's using that word shma in the he feel form. Listen up. Hear me now. <laughs> okay, it's, it's really clear. Now, he says, to the end of the earth, says in your, if you've got the New King James Version, I like it, generally speaking, but this verse, can't say I like it. I do know Hebrew, so that's one of the reasons I don't like it. It says in, your, in the King New King James, to the end of the world, say to the daughters of Zion. No, it's the word aretz, which means earth or land. And now you listen to Yeshua. He says something. Okay, what are we supposed to say? Say to the daughters of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Now listen to Yeshua, who said almost the same thing in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. To the end of the earth. He's speaking like Isaiah here. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed that we ought to partner with him in saying to Zion, your salvation is coming. But I want to tell you right now, it's actually in the Hebrew not you got to understand this. It's not your salvation is coming. Yes, the word's there, salvation. But you have to understand it's your Savior is coming. How do we know that? Because it says right here in the text, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. This coming salvation is a he, not an it. <laughs> Okay, he's coming. He's the salvation. Hallelujah. You know, I'm not going to preach much longer. I can hear the music playing. Okay. <laughs> All right. You know, the angel came to Joseph. He said, now, call your son that just got born, that's about to be born. Call him Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. You say Jesus, it's come, it, we, we get that from the Greek of the New Testament, but in Hebrew, it's, it's Yeshua. <laughs> it comes from Yeshua. What does that mean? Salvation. But Yeshua means Yah, the Lord. Yeshua, the Lord saves. It's a person that saves. It is not a religion that saves. 
It's not a plan of salvation that saves. It's Yeshua himself, the Lord, who saves us. So we are to proclaim that the Savior is coming. Yeshua is coming. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. We've said it so many times. Judaism doesn't save you. Messianic Judaism doesn't save you. Christianity doesn't save you. Christ saves you. The person Yeshua saves you. And that's the proclamation. We proclaim the way. Who is he? I am the way. <laughs> I am the way, Yeshua says. It's not enough to know that, you're, that Yeshua is the way, but you have to come into relationship with him personally. And we need to declare that message loud and clear. Do the Jews need to hear the message? <laughs> Romans 1.16, Paul says, Paul the, the rabbi says, he's tried to be righteous. Read, read Romans chapter seven. He tries really hard. <laughs> I, I know what I ought to do, but I don't do it. I, I, I really try hard, but I can't do it. That's, that's, the, that's the testimony of everybody in this house. You can't be righteous enough. It's a struggle. But hallelujah. Yeshua has come, and he saves the Lord our righteousness. Hallelujah. Today, Jewish people have a struggle with Yeshua. Here's a big problem they've got. They know what the scriptures say about the Messiah coming on a donkey humbly into Jerusalem. It's in the scriptures. Then Daniel says, he's coming on the clouds. <laughs> Yeshua says, I'm coming on the clouds, but he also came on a donkey. So how do they solve the problem? Well, a lot of ultra-Orthodox Jews and even regular Orthodox Jews, and you can see it clearly in some of the writings in the Dead Sea Scrolls, believe that there must be two messiahs to solve the contradiction. Coming on a donkey, coming from the clouds. And so really, we need two messiahs. Number one, Messiah, son of Joseph and he will die. Messiah, son of David, and he will resurrect the son of Joseph. Two messiahs. You can read about it. It's all out there. Hallelujah for one Savior. <laughs> Came on a donkey humbly to Jerusalem. He's coming back on the clouds, and he will enter Jerusalem from heaven. Hallelujah with the hosts of heaven. And in this great latter-day battle against Jerusalem and this nation, whether it's in Armageddon or also in Jerusalem, Yeshua will come and he will win the war. The resurrected Lord, Satan has no chance. Satan is so stupid to think he has any chance. We're not into dualism. Satan over here, Jesus over here. Oh man, they're gonna struggle. Ultimately, Jesus wins. I mean, Jesus just has to go like this. That's all he has to do. I mean, he just waves his arm and he says, peace, be still. And peace comes to this land. No more war. Take their swords, they'll turn them into plowshares. That's the Messiah we're serving. That's the message. Yeshua is coming. He's coming back. You know, and then if you read the, the Gospels, Yeshua keeps talking about himself as the Son of Man who's coming. And then throughout, I, I wrote down almost every book in the New Testament says something about Yeshua coming back and to be ready for his return. Are you ready for his return? I want to encourage each and every one of us who share the good news with people, don't forget to say Yeshua is coming. We've, we're building a highway for him to come, and we're removing the stones, and a day is coming when the eyes will be open. This is the time to say he's coming again. He's coming down the highway toward Jerusalem. Why don't you just go out and meet him on the way? <laughs> yeah. That's so much part of the gospel. That's good news, folks. Yeshua is coming. Would you stand? Lord, I want to ask you right now for myself and all of us in this place. Lord, help us to up our game. 
May we never neglect the job description you have proclaimed to us, the partnership that you have brought us into, that we will pray the way. Oh God, keep us awake when we need to be awake. Oh Lord, that we would pray your scriptures, which will help us stay awake and we'll pray the promises and we'll see them come to pass because they're your will. And may we prepare the way by building up the highway for Yeshua, removing those stones of stumbling. Oh God, unify us. God, get our doctrines straight. Get rid of any heresy in our midst. I pray, oh God, that you would get rid of hypocrisy. Say it in my own heart, Lord, help me live what I proclaim. Highway of holiness, you want me to help you build, oh God. Make me holy, make each of us holy, God. Lord, our righteousness, thank you for being our righteousness. May we live in gratitude for the righteousness that you've given us, that we would obey you, not because we have to, but because we're so grateful for what you've done for us. We do it as the fruit of, of repentance. Hallelujah. I don't know what else to pray, but I just know that these are momentous days. These are days that we've never seen before. And it can look dark and gloomy, and you can complain all you want. But I say, Yeshua is coming. Yeshua is coming. Lift up your heads. <laughs> your redemption draws nigh. Lift up your heads. Your redemption draws nigh. If any of you want to want somebody to pray with you and agree with you in prayer that you'll be a better prayer, a better preparer, and a better proclaimer. Would you come to the front? I'm going to join our prayer team and pray also. And I believe the Lord will answer your prayer tonight. You're going to see a difference in your life. Amen. God bless you.